Okay, um, let's see. We're starting a, a study based upon uh, a book by the late J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Um, and we primarily want to speak about the spiritual factors involved in evangelizing. So, let me just say at the beginning, the main subject is evangelism in, the, in these few weeks. We'll probably speak of evangelism in terms of its relation, relation to the sovereignty of God. Uh, we're not going to be dealing with the sovereignty of God any further than is necessary for a right thinking about evangelism. Uh, because, you know, evan- divine sovereignty is a vast subject. It includes, you know, everything. It includes everything that comes into the biblical picture of God as, the, as Lord and King over His world. Uh, as Ephesians 1.11 says, He's the one who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Directing every process and making every ordering every event for the fulfilling of his ultimate purpose. So to deal with the subject in full would be more than we need to do in this study. We're just going to deal with it in terms of its relationship to evangelism. Uh, What will concern us is God's sovereignty in grace, uh, in working uh, his action in bringing helpless sinners to Christ. That's, that's our uh, subject in terms of divine sovereignty. Uh, also, an opacker wants, wants to deal with this suspicion, widespread suspicion, that somehow a robust faith in divine sovereignty um, somehow undermines any adequate sense of uh, human responsibility. Uh, so... Such faith in God's sovereignty somehow undermines a person's, let's say, free will to make decisions. That's that's the kind of thing he wants to deal with here. Such faith is thought to be dangerous to spiritual health, and because it it breeds a habit of complacency in terms of evangelism, people say, "Well, if God is sovereign." He'll save who he wills, and I don't need to go out and share my faith, basically. Um, So it robs the motive to evangelize, and often even the message to evangelize with. Uh, And somehow, the supposition seems to be that, you know, you cannot evangelize effectively unless, while you're doing it, you pretend that divine sovereignty is not true. Which is nonsense. (laughs) So, um, what we want to look at here in terms of this study is is that far from inhibiting evangelism, actually, um, faith in divine sovereignty of God's government is is necessary. In fact, it is the only thing that gives us resilience in evangelizing. Uh, If we're to evangelize boldly and persistently and be able to not be daunted by temporary setbacks because somebody doesn't respond or whatever, you know. So the divine sovereignty actually is a good thing. It helps us know that uh, what our responsibility is and what God's responsibility is in that. So um, let me me just ask, how many of you here today came 
to faith in Christ as an adult? Raise your hands. Okay. Several of you did? Good. Um, Okay, how about in terms of the other way, uh, how many of you have, like, personally maybe shared the gospel with a non-Christian friend? I, you know, uh, when I was a new Christian, I came to Christ as an adult as well. I grew up in a Roman Catholic church. I just thought I was a Christian because of that, you know. Uh, It wasn't until later, after we were married, but again, it was a process of God working. Uh, uh, my uh, my girlfriend uh, in college was Southern Baptist. I was Roman Catholic. Uh, we didn't know that at the time. It didn't matter at the time, actually. But uh, that's Ruth, my wife. <laughs> and God used her in my life to actually start reading the Bible. It was actually through reading the Bible that I learned a lot. I'd go to church with her, and we would, and I would hear things I hadn't heard growing up as a Roman Catholic. Um, long story short, after probably I don't know, it was a couple of years before I actually came came to Christ. Uh, but after after coming to Christ, I was um, our church was a part of Key seventy three. Nineteen seventy three was. Uh, it was a Bill White Campus Crusade for Christ deal uh, where people would go out with the four spiritual laws, track, and share the gospel with people. Um, so, one of the older men in church who was really discipling me and Ruth both uh, through home Bible studies and so on, he asked me to go with him out door to door. I mean, I. This is so far from my experience. <laughs> but he, he, he took me out and, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the four spiritual laws. I think the first point could probably be changed on that. But, but uh, the, anyway, uh, he said, okay, I'll, I'll, go, I'll do a few houses and then, and then you'll do. After watching me, you know, you do it. So, so he goes through the house and, you know, they go through the booklet knock on the door. You couldn't do that today, but that was back in the 1970s. You could knock on the door, people would answer, and they'd listen to you. You'd go through the presentation. Uh, and he says, um, okay, the next one's yours. So so I get the booklet out, knock on the door. A lady answers. The, I t- told them who we were, you know, what we're doing, and could we, you know, share this booklet with her? She says, sure. So I'm going through the booklet, you know, law one, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And law two, you break it, you, you've broken God's law, and, and so it separates us from God and going through the. And I'm kind of stumbling around, and at one point, you know, you hold a pencil, so you're pointing to the thing and showing them, and and somewhere in there, I drop the pencil, <laughs> pick it up, start start where I left off. I stumble through this thing. I get to the end where it says. Uh, you know, would you like to receive Christ as your Savior? And she says, yes, I would. <laughs> I almost, almost said, really? <laughs> uh, but but it, what it showed me was that God is definitely sovereign in salvation. <laughs> it wasn't anything I did there at all. You know? uh, yes? Okay. Kind of you just said, 
Josh said, well, I didn't have to use In all of these things, it proves that it's the Holy Spirit's inward work working outward, not some outward work working inward. There's the best operato, I think is that term for yes. baptism, or something before defining the activity of baptism. It's not outward towards the inward. No, I understand that sovereignty in all of this. It doesn't matter ultimately who talks to you. It doesn't matter who baptizes whether it's Peter or Paul or Apollos or, you know. What matters is the Holy Spirit open your ears to hear. Exactly. That's right. And that's, that's, and that's kind of what we're going to deal with when we talk about divine sovereignty in, in this. Uh, so that's why I'm not going to spend a lot of time proving the general truth that God is sovereign here. Uh, because if you're a Christian, you already believe this. Uh, now, how do I know that? Because you pray. You pray, Right? Um, and the recognition of God's sovereignty is really the basis of our prayers so if I would ask um, what do you pray about what would you say everything everything okay let's get some specifics here (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You you know, we recognize that God is the author and source of all the good that we have. Everything we receive, you know, is a gift from God. And so, the fundamental it's it's the fundamental philosophy of Christian prayer that God is in control, and so we ask Him for things. We recognize that He gives those things. it's not an attempt to force God's hand, you know, to, uh, in a sense, do something. But it's a humble acknowledgement of our own helplessness and uh, dependence upon God. So when praying, we know that we don't control the world. It's not in our power to supply our own needs independent of God. That's even, if, it's, if that's true even in our daily bread, as the Lord's Prayer tells us it is, it's true of everything else. So, in, in effect, every time we pray, we confess our own impotence and God's sovereignty. And I'm not, also not going to spend time proving uh, the particular truth that God is sovereign in salvation, because you already know that. Two. And there are two facts that show this. You first of all, you give thanks to God for your conversion. Don't you? You thank God for his grace and mercy in, in showing you uh, his grace by sending his son to die on the cross for us. We know in our hearts that God's responsible for our salvation. We didn't save ourselves, and we thank him for that. Uh, and you think about, like all the factors we've talked about, all the factors where God's working behind the scenes, it's like um, most of you 
grew up in a church, he said. Well, it's no, it wasn't by chance that you grew up in a church. You know, God worked that out before. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a, by chance that perhaps you were born into a Christian family. Uh, I grew up Roman Catholic, but, it, you know, I thank God for growing up in a, Christ, in a, in a, in a family that went to church. So uh, we thank God for all those things, for Christian friends, for the fact that we heard the gospel, that we have the freedom to worship. We thank God for all those things. That, that is uh, evidence of our belief that God is, God is sovereign in grace. Uh, it's, you know, um, there's a point here in, in Packer's book, and I just want to read this. It's a, it's a conversation between Charles Simeon and his account of a his actually it's his account of a conversation with John Wesley uh, back in 1784. Um, Wesley actually recorded it in his journal, and uh, here's what it says. This is Charles Simeon speaking here. He says, "Sir, I understand that you are called an Arminian, and I have been sometimes been called a Calvinist. Therefore, I suppose." We are to draw dra- draw daggers. <laughs> but before I consent to begin the combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions. Please, sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would never have thought of turning to God if God had not first put it into your heart? Yes, Wesley said, I do indeed. And do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? Yes, solely through Christ. But sir, supposing you were at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? No, I must be saved by Christ from first to last, said Wesley. Allowing then that you were first turned by the grace of God, are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? No. What then are you to be upheld every hour and every moment by God, as much as an infant in its mother's arms? Yes, altogether. And is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you into his heavenly kingdom? Yes. I have no hope but in him. Then, sir, with your leave, I will put put up my dagger again, for this is all of my Calvinism. This is my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold and as I hold it. Therefore, if you please, instead searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite those things wherein we agree. This subject of divine sovereignty and human responsibility is sometimes a contentious, it's an area of contention, as I mentioned before, in terms of um, where you put the emphasis, I suppose, here. There's a second way to acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation, and that is you pray for the conversion of others. You, know, you pray for your non Christian friends that they would come to Christ. How do you pray when you're praying for a non Christian friend? God, they've been really, really hard to be saved. I can't. Just, you know. <laughs> 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 All right, we'll talk about that. 
<laughs> Somebody? Yeah. You pray that God would change their heart, uh, open their blind eyes and deaf ears to hear. You're trusting God to work because He's sovereign in salvation. In prayer, you know then that it's God who saves people. And you know that what makes people turn to God is God's own gracious work in drawing that person to Himself. So by by the practice of intercession, no less than by giving thanks for your own conversion, you acknowledge and confess the sovereignty of God's grace. And so, actually, do all Christians everywhere. Uh, Both the Arminian and the Calvinist. As I mentioned, there's that long-standing controversy in the church as to whether God is really Lord in relation to human conduct and saving faith or not. Uh, but what, you know, what we just said shows us how we should look at this controversy. The situation is really not what it seems to be. It's not true that some Christians believe in divine sovereignty while, other, while others believe the opposite view. Really, what's true is that all Christians believe in divine sovereignty. It's just that some are not aware that they do. <laughs> really. Uh, because... they mistakenly imagine and insist that they reject God's sovereignty. And what causes that? The root cause is the same as in most cases of error in the church, the intruding of uh, rationalistic speculations, as uh, Packer puts it. The passion for systematic consistency, a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery, and to let God be wiser than men, and as he says, consequent subjecting of Scripture to the supposed demands of human logic, unquote. So people see that the Bible teaches man's responsibility for his actions. They do not see, in fact they cannot see, how this is consistent with the sovereignty, the sovereign lordship of God. Uh, That they stand actually side by side and, and it's hard for people to let that truth stand, where they're both true, that God is sovereign, man is responsible. And they jump to the conclusion that in order to uphold the biblical truth of human responsibility, they're bound to reject the equally biblical truth of God's sovereignty, and try to explain away the the great number of texts that show that. The irony of the situation, however, is that when you ask how the two sides pray, it becomes apparent that those who profess to deny God's sovereignty really believe it uh, just as strongly as those who affirm it by their prayers, because that's how they pray. On our feet, we may have arguments about it, but on our knees, we're all agreed that God is sovereign. Uh, so that's the starting point. But I want to I want to hand out another sheet here. The sheet going around um, entitled The Theology of Compatibilism that deals with this the issue we're talking about here, uh, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So, the first point says God is absolutely sovereign. But His sovereign power never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or negated. Secondly, 
Human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions, and so forth, and they are rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent. Compatibilism is a view that both these propositions are true. The Bible upholds the truth of both of these propositions simultaneously. So you see the diagram there. God is transcendent and personal. He's absolutely sovereign. Human beings are morally responsible. And so on the left-hand side, you see um, the verses that speak about God's sovereignty. God will bring everything to pass as he has decreed. Um, Let's see what... Let's see, Michelle and Arlene, Chris, would you look up those three, those three verses? And then uh, opposite that, human beings choose their own decisions without coercion. Uh, David, would you? And uh, Will? Will, I mean. <laughs> Finn, you want to look up the other one, third one? All right, Psalm 115, 2 and 3. Michelle? Why should the nation say the Lord is God? Our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases. Okay, our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases. Daniel 4, 35. I lost Daniel. <laughs> I lost Daniel. Believe it. We'll wait. <laughs> no wait. <laughs> Somebody else have it? Daniel four thirty five. Yes. Okay. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? All right. Thank you. King Nebuchadnezzar, after he after he was insane for seven years, and God re- gave him back his mind, and yeah, Ephesians one eleven. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay, all things go- so. God is sovereign. Human beings choose their decisions without coercion. Luke 22, 1 to 6. Now the feast of unleavened bread grew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. All right. Man working out, doing his own actions. At will. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Okay. That, that, that man to betray Jesus, Judas was morally responsible for that betrayal. John 19 
8 to 11. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside the palace. Where you come from? He was given no answer. You refused to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power to give it for you and to crucify you? He was answered. There are no power over me if you were not given to you, or were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. Okay, and again he's speaking of Judas, the one who handed you over to you is greater, uh, guilty of a greater sin, so he is morally responsible for, for that. Back to the left hand side, God's prophetic word predicted certain events would happen hundreds of years before they did. Psalm 34.20 and Zechariah 12.10. Uh, <clears throat> Josh, Rachel, would you take those? And human beings fulfill these prophecies without being coerced. Again, John 19, 31-37. Uh, Sarah, would you take that? Psalm 34, 20. It says, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Alright. And Zechariah 12, 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and please for mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who once were an only child and weeps bitterly over him. All right, this is a prophecy about the, re- the crucifixion of, of Christ in these two passages. John 19, 31 to 37. All right, so we see the prophecy uh, of the crucifixion and the fact that none of his bones will be broken. And then you have the event, the actual crucifixion, and those soldiers are doing what they're told to do, to break the bones. When they come to Christ, they find that he's already dead. and don't, they're, doing, they're, they're, they're actually doing the actions, have no knowledge of these prophecies at all, and uh, you see that they're fulfilled. Okay, uh, finally, God is absolutely sovereign and never contingent upon sinners. And on the other side, human beings are fully responsible for their actions, but they never cancel out God's sovereignty. You notice it's the same passage. Okay. So, uh, Kirk, would you read that? Acts 4, 23-31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the, Gent- why did the Gentiles rage? And why did the people plot in vain? The kings of earth 
set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hands to heal and the signs and the wonders are performed throughout uh, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. All right. So you see that he tells about all what all these people did, the Pilate, the Jews, the Romans, or Gentiles did. They they actually were the ones who, you know, acted to crucify Christ, but then they did whatever your hand and your plan had determined to take place. So they're both there in the same passage. And uh, the the issue is that we need to accept both of the truths that they stand side by side. Now, how they do that is a mystery to us. But then we're not God. So we have to admit, yeah, Curtis? I just going to say that um, all of the verses that you use there, and then a few extras if you, if you have time later today, um, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, verse 1, has a summary statement of basically that. But it has all the same text. Okay. Does it? This was a. It uses a particular phrase too about what you mentioned that people, actors doing things that are part of God's will, even they don't know the prophecies, they call it secondary cause. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is a sheet I actually got uh, when I was in seminary. uh, uh, D.A. Carson, a class of D.A. Carson's, he handed that out and. it, uh, yeah, I've used it over the years <laughs> to help explain that idea that uh, they're both they're both true. They're both taught as truths in the Bible, and we have to accept that truth, uh, even though we don't understand how they can both be true at the same time. But that's because, again, God uh, is wiser than us; smarter, He knows all. All right, um, we have, looks like, five more minutes here. Okay, so um, thinking about divine sovereignty and human responsibility, my purpose is is to think out the nature of the Christian's evangelistic task in the light of this agreed upon presupposition that God is sovereign in salvation. But that's not easy to do because in thinking it through, we have to deal with uh, what's called an antinomy. Uh, and I'll have a sheet. I'll have a sheet about that next week. I was I uh, was going to start this next week, what I'm starting now. So I'll bring that with me. But an antinomy, uh, we have we have to deal with an antinomy in biblical revelation. And uh, in such circumstances, our finite fallen minds are. Uh, more than ordinarily apt to go astray when we're talking about antinomies. What is an antinomy? Well, the, the shorter Oxford Dictionary defines it as a contradiction between conclusions 
which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. Now, for our purposes, however, I think that definition is not quite accurate. The, the opening word should, be, should read an appearance of contradiction. Not a contradiction, but an appearance of contradiction, which seems equally logical, reasonable, and necessary. The whole point of an antinomy, at least in theology, uh, is that it is an apparent uh, incompatibility between two apparent truths. It's only apparent. They are compatible, as we saw here, the theology of compatibilism. They are compatible, but um, it's not apparent how they are. So an antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. And there are solid reasons for believing that each exists, and that each rests on clear, solid evidence. But it's a mystery to understand, uh, to know how they can be squared with each other. So uh, we see that each must be true in its own, but we don't see how they can be true together. We, you have an example of this in modern physics, actually. You know, in its study of light, there's good evidence to show that light consists of waves. But there's also equally good evidence to show that it consists of particles. So it's not apparent how light can be both waves and particles, but the evidence is there, and so neither view can be ruled out in favor of the other. So, again, the two positions must be held together and treated as true. And our tidy, rational minds do not like antinomies. <laughs> and so we usually emphasize one and de-emphasize the other depending on uh, your view of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Now, an antinomy is not the same thing as a paradox. A paradox is a figure of speech. It's a, it's a play on words. Uh, it's a form of statement that seems to unite two opposite ideas or deny something by the very terms in which it is asserted. Many truths, for example, in the Christian life can be expressed as paradoxes. And the Apostle Paul uses them uh, where he says in uh, 2 Corinthians 6, he says, quote, Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Having nothing, yet possessing all things. Well, you know, it's like, well, how does that work? <laughs> or, when I am weak, then I am strong. So both of those are Second Corinthians. The point of a paradox is that it creates an appearance of contradiction, not in the facts, but in the words. The words create the seeming contradiction. It's a verbal contradiction, but it's not a real contradiction. And uh, we can, with a little thought, see how the contradiction can be eliminated. So in other words, a, a paradox is always dispensable. You can, you can dispense with it, you can figure it out. Paul might have said that sorrow at circumstances and joy in God are constantly combined in his experience. And he could have said, though he owns no property and has no bank balance, there's a sense in which everything belongs to him because he is Christ, and Christ is Lord of all. He could have, but that was a lot of words, you see. So, so he, he creates this paradox to, to 
bring this truth and it's easy to mem- it's, it's easier to remember than all those other words. And so that's how I use this paradox there. Uh, now, so a paradox is merely a matter of how you use words. It's sort of a trick of speech. It doesn't imply even appearance of contradiction in the facts that they're describing there. By contrast, however, an antinomy is neither dispensable nor comprehensible. It's not a figure of speech, but an observed relation between two statements of fact. It's not deliberately manufactured. It's forced upon us by the facts themselves. And it's unavoidable and it's insoluble. Uh, We do not invent antinomies and we cannot explain it. So what should we do with them? Well, we should accept it for what it is and learn to live with it. That's what we should do with it. All right, so we'll stop there. Um, Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the, the fact that you are sovereign over all things. We thank you, Lord, that when we pray for our non-Christian family members or friends, we know that you are at work uh, in them. You are at work in the, in the circumstances. And that we can trust that you are working out your plan in your time. Um, we praise you, Lord for who you are and for your grace and salvation. We thank you for our own salvation, Lord. And we pray as we go into this worship service now that we might sense your presence and give glory to you and all that we say and do. In Christ we ask. Amen.